Hurry into Ram Power Days and experience the raw power of the Ram 3500 with available best-in-class torque and towing among 350-3500 pickups when properly equipped. Strap yourself in for one powerful ride in the Ram TRX with the most horsepower of any gas pickup ever built. Or the Ram 1500, awarded number one in driver appeal among light-duty pickups by J.D. Power three years in a row. Hurry into Ram Power Days going on now. For J.D. Power 2022 U.S. award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com marathon. When Rhode Island firefighters respond to a report of a blaze at an apartment building, they find themselves in the midst of a horrific crime scene when the smoke clears. Detectives theorize that a kind and adventurous woman's murder was as personal as it was brutal in this episode of Last Seen Alive. Thanks for listening to Last Seen Alive. I'm your host, Leah, crime analyst by day and true crime storyteller by night. And I am your co-host, Scott. Kimberly Morse was last seen alive on January 18th, 2000. The new year had arrived just a couple weeks before, and it was the cusp of a whole new millennium. For many people, it was an exciting time. The arrival of the new millennium had a way of making people think about the future and the good things it might bring. I personally was subjected to the horrors of the fears of Y2K. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you're old enough to remember the arrival of the year 2000, like we are, you know that we frankly were all pretty relieved that all the computers in the world hadn't crashed, plummeting society into a state of Stone Age chaos. What would we listen to podcasts on? Radios, I guess. But plenty of people were psyched about what the future might bring, and Kimberly was no exception. She was 32 years old at the time and was actively working toward her next adventure in life, a career as an esthetician. In fact, she was about to graduate from her esthetician courses and even had a new job lined up in the distant, sunny state of Florida. For Kimberly, moving over a thousand miles away for a new opportunity would have been pretty on brand. She'd always had an adventurous spirit. She grew up in the small coastal town of York, Maine, where she was surrounded by her large family. However, she wasn't bound to the familiar. She eagerly explored new places and experiences. She loved the excitement of travel, and during her 32 years, she'd been all over the place, even once living in St. Croix, where she worked painting houses damaged by hurricanes in addition to waiting tables. So, travel was one passion, and another was fitness. She was meticulous about her health, adhering to a healthy diet and a regular fitness routine. And I don't mean some casual exercise, either. I mean high-intensity aerobics and weightlifting routines. Yes, aerobics back in the heyday of aerobics. I know you're thinking of the Crystal Light Aerobics Championship, Scott, and yes, she probably could have competed in that. She was so fit. That is one of my favorite pastimes. Watching those videos, I love it too. It's such a nostalgic throwback to a simpler time. It is. So she was so into fitness that 
She eventually got into entering bikini contests for extra money in the summer, and she often won. Now, Kimberly did not let her good looks go to her head, though. She was hardworking and friendly, often working in hotels as a housekeeper, in restaurants as a waitress, and in a local hospital cafeteria serving food. She liked work that involved interacting with the public, even if it meant frequent applications of elbow grease. It seems like she probably had ample elbow grease to spare. Definitely. So she was also very funny, a prankster even. While researching these episodes, I read about a variety of hijinks she'd gotten up to that her family and friends remembered best. And one in particular that I want to share with you, I found on MurderSheTold.com, which is the website for a podcast that did a really fantastic write-up on this case that I encourage you to read because it's got lots of stories that tell you something about who Kimberly was. And this story goes like this. Kimberly was a lot younger than her siblings, as in nearly two decades younger. That's a crazy gap. Yeah, she was a surprise for her parents. A welcome surprise, but definitely a surprise. So by the time she was an adult, one of her sisters, Sandy, had a son who was graduating from basic training in the United States Marine Corps, and she invited Kimberly along on a trip to North Carolina to see her nephew graduate. Kimberly enthusiastically accepted the invitation. Yes, he was her nephew, but really, they'd grown up more like cousins than his aunt and nephew. They were close, and she was proud of him. It wasn't lost on Kimberly that the Camp Lejeune Marine Corps base would be teeming with young men, some of whom whose heads she'd probably turn. And true to her nature, she wanted to find a way to make the most of the comedic opportunity this presented. So she got this set of fake teeth, like the rubber kind that you can pop in over your own teeth for a Halloween costume, like they sell in a novelty store in the mall. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Yeah, and so she didn't tell her sister or anyone else about them as they traveled all the way from New England to North Carolina. She just kept them quietly hidden away, waiting for the right moment. When they arrived, she popped the teeth in. The plan was to flash a huge grin at any young Marine whose head she turned, and she imagined they would be shocked by her teeth. The false teeth she'd chosen were in really poor shape with extreme discoloration and crookedness. However... She never got to see the look on anyone's face when they saw her smile, because one of the first things she did was meet up with her nephew and a fellow Marine friend of his whose mother was also in town for the graduation. And to Kimberly's horror, she realized that the other Marine's mother's teeth were in desperate need of dental care. In fact, her real teeth looked uncannily like the fake teeth that she herself had donned as a joke. Yike. Yeah, needless to say, Kimberly was super embarrassed. The prank she'd planned had backfired in the worst way, and she felt terrible. But the point is, she loved to make jokes, just not at someone else's expense. She had intended to be the butt of the joke, something she didn't mind making herself if it got a few laughs. And speaking of her literally making herself the butt of a joke, there was another story that I thought was really funny. You know how I said she would go compete in those bikini contests to make extra cash? Yeah. Because let's be real, you're not exactly raking it in, cleaning hotel rooms or waiting tables most of the time. So she would go like, you know, to a bar in the summer where they were doing a contest like that. Maybe she could bring home a couple hundred bucks, whatever, if she could win. And like I said, she was in fantastic shape. So she once did this contest at a bar in Florida and she decided that it would be funny to moon the crowd. And I guess they liked what they saw because she won. But after all this, she learned that her prize was not cash, but like a lawn chair. 
And she was so mad because she'd flown to Florida and she couldn't bring back the stupid lawn chair unless she wanted to pay, you know, a million dollars in bulky luggage fees. So she mooned that crowd for basically nothing. Yeah. Well, the joy it brought to the crowd is its own reward. But (laughs) I guess so. She didn't think so. I thought that was very funny. (laughs) She has great self-awareness for not making somebody else the butt of the joke. Yeah, so what I'm saying, she would literally make herself the butt of the joke, but she was not a mean person. She felt really bad about that whole teeth thing. So I I like to think that I would get along with her really well because I, too, am a jokester. Yes, I am an avid prankster, so. By the time the year 2000 rolled around, Kimberly was living not in her home state of Maine, but in North Providence, Rhode Island. There, she was a student at the Warwick Academy of Beauty Culture, where she was studying for a career as an esthetician. As much as she enjoyed that, though, it was actually another line of work that had brought her to Rhode Island in the first place. A couple years beforehand, when she'd been about 30, a friend of hers who'd lived in Rhode Island had essentially told her, you know what, you're so confident and you're in great shape. Plus, you already mooned that crowd at the bar that one time. Okay, I don't know if they said that. I'm just imagining, but I think that you could be making way more income than you're pulling in waiting tables and dishing out meals at the hospital cafeteria. Have you ever considered exotic dancing? That friend told her about a place in North Providence, an establishment called the Foxy Lady Gentlemen's Club. They said it was one of the more reputable clubs in the area and that they thought she could make a killing working there. So Kimberly thought it over and ultimately she decided to give it a try. She didn't think it sounded that much different than the bikini contest she'd participated in, and it was bound to be more lucrative. Maybe she'd like it. And she had already mooned a crowd. Yeah, and she could pretty much count on, if she could do that at this place, she would get a lot more than a lawn chair she couldn't even take home. Yeah. So, you know, it made sense. And she tried it, and she found that her friend had been right. It really did work out pretty well for her. She was able to make great money, a lot more than she'd been making before, Nobody tried to pay her in lawn chairs, and it made it even easier for her to pursue her passion for travel. So she quickly made friends with other women who worked at the club. They appreciated her friendly nature and her sense of humor. And eventually, a coworker and friend of hers at the club inspired her to attend the Warwick Academy of Beauty. That coworker was a woman named Becky, and Kimberly got along with her especially well because they were the two oldest dancers at the club. So they really bonded. And Kimberly saw her going to the school and she thought that might be something that she might like to get into in the future because she was in her 30s. She didn't want to work at the Foxy Lady forever, even though she enjoyed it then. I'm just wondering if she ever pulled out the fake teeth at the Foxy Lady. I don't know. That whole experience at Camp Lejeune might have scared her off on the fake teeth, but I like to think that she pulled a few pranks. The club patrons also appreciated Kimberly. It wasn't just her looks that made her a favorite of theirs, but her personality as well. She made people feel welcome, she made people laugh, she was the life of the party, and her appearance was, of course, icing on the cake. As cliche as the saying has become in true crime, Kimberly was very much one of those people who lit up a room. She was very charismatic. And the fact that she was so likable made what happened to her all that much more shocking. On January 18th, 2000, Kimberly worked a shift at the club, which ended at 1-something a.m., As she left the club, she already had the weekend on her mind. Her 33rd birthday was just a few days away, and she would be driving home to Maine to celebrate with her family, including several members who shared birthdays just days apart from her own. Plus, she'd also get to see Heather. 
Heather was a little girl who lived just down the street from Kimberly's parents and was being raised by her grandmother. Kimberly had known Heather's mother, who had moved to a distant state, leaving her daughter in her grandmother's care. And Kimberly took it upon herself to step in and act as another mother figure to her, basically. Heather, of course, loved this, and Kimberly took their bond very seriously, serving as a mentor to the little girl. In fact, Kimberly frequently made the two-hour drive from North Providence to York so she could spend time with her family and with Heather. And that was likely what she had on her mind as she left the club that night. She'd spoken to one of her sisters about all of it on the phone earlier that day. At the time, Kimberly had no way of knowing that she'd already spent her last weekend with her family and with Heather, and that she wouldn't live to visit them again. In fact, nobody knew until the next day when firefighters rushed in response to a report of a fire at her apartment building. When they arrived, they found smoke coming from Kimberly's basement-level apartment. Fortunately, the fire had been seen and called in quickly, quickly enough that the fire hadn't had time to totally consume the modestly-sized apartment. In fact, the fire was contained to the bathtub, and there was something else in the tub, too, something that made it painfully obvious why the fire had been set. More on that next. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. And now, back to Kimberly's story. When firefighters arrived at the Brick Manor condominiums complex, they hurried to the source of the smoke, which was Kimberly's basement unit. The smoke detector had gone off inside at around 5 p.m., which had caught a neighbor's attention and prompted them to call 911. By the time firefighters arrived, smoke was curling out from beneath the door. Once inside, it didn't take them long to find the source of the heavy smoke. The unit was modestly sized, with just one bedroom and one bathroom. And of all places, the bathroom was where the fire had originated. Not in the kitchen or the living area, but the bathroom. Perhaps that was their first clue that the fire had been deliberately set. I'm no firefighter, but Scott, you were, so perhaps you can weigh in. Would you say that it's fairly unusual for a house fire's point of origin to be in a bathroom? So, if it were an electrical fire, not really. Okay. Ungrounded outlets are a great cause for electrical fires. And as you know, you get something like a hair dryer mm-hmm. wet. If it doesn't have a grounding source, then it could easily trip the breaker or cause a short in the outlet and that could go ablaze. But for it to be in the bathtub and not started at a receptacle, mm-hmm. that is very odd. And obviously one of the greatest tools to firefighting in existence is right there. Yeah. It's a great source of water. So yeah, no, I've been trying to figure that out. 
When firefighters entered the bathroom, they found the fire contained in the bathtub. That made it easy enough to subdue, but suppressing the fire wasn't the biggest challenge they faced. Coming to grips with what they saw beneath the flames was probably much more difficult. Because with the fire subdued, it was obvious. It had been set upon a human body. A woman's body, to be specific. Kimberly's. Her nude body had been laying face up in the tub and someone had draped gasoline-soaked towels across her torso and legs. It was clear that the fire likely hadn't been what had killed her. There was blood everywhere and her throat had been cut. Okay, so the next question I was going to have was what was the primary source for the accelerant, but... Gasoline. So they had towels just draped over her, Mm -hmm. so they didn't submerge her. No. So that's interesting that they just set it on top of what they wanted to burn instead of underneath to try to get the flames to actually engulf the victim. Yeah. This person probably was not an experienced arsonist. So naturally, police soon arrived on scene. And now that the smoke in the apartment had cleared, they were able to see what firefighters hadn't when they'd first made entry. A large puddle of blood on the kitchen floor. The puddle was so large that investigators determined it marked the spot where Kimberly had been attacked and killed just feet from her front door. Examination of her body revealed that in addition to her throat having been cut, she'd been repeatedly stabbed in the back, which investigators believed had occurred before her throat being cut. Okay, did they determine which cut was like the killing blow? I think they believed that her throat was slit after she was attacked from behind. As for which wound specifically was the fatal one or ones, I'm not certain. Investigators also noticed that Kimberly's keys and gloves were on the kitchen table. All of this suggested to them that she had likely been attacked, taken by surprise, shortly after arriving home from work, entering her apartment's kitchen, taking off her gloves, and putting down her keys. When investigators spoke to her neighbors, one man reported that he'd heard a loud thump followed by footsteps coming from Kimberly's apartment at about the time she'd gotten home from work, but no screams or sounds of a struggle. This further reinforced investigators' theory that she'd been ambushed and savagely attacked from behind, likely before she'd even realized what was going on. Had Kimberly's attacker had the courage to face her head-on, she certainly would have put up a fight. Remember, she was a bodybuilder, and she knew that working at the club might attract some unwanted attention, so she'd taken self-defense classes as a precaution. As investigators pieced together the timeline of Kimberly's murder, they realized that her death had preceded the fire by approximately 15 hours. She'd been killed at around 2 a.m. the night before when she'd arrived home from work, and the fire hadn't been set until around 5 p.m. the following day. That meant that her killer had murdered her and then left her body in the apartment for approximately 15 hours before attempting to dispose of it by setting the blaze. And the reason for the delay is one of many question marks in this case. So that definitely raises a number of questions in and of itself. I'm sure some of them you'll explore, but the first one I can think of with it being like a weekday is maybe they, well, no, because it was middle of the day. Yeah, I thought that too. I was like, maybe they had to go to work. And I was like, wait, they had to go to work at 2 a.m.-ish? Probably not. I wondered, did it take them 15 hours to come up with a plan for attempting to dispose of Kimberly's remains? If so, that seems kind of odd since it seems as if her murder was premeditated. I mean, why wouldn't they have come up with a plan for what to do beforehand? And really, 15 hours, that's the best thing you'd come up with? Now, frankly, I don't have any answers 
to why it took them 15 hours to set the fire. I really don't know. But speaking of oddities when it comes to this case, there was another detail that investigators learned from neighbors, a strange one. Apparently, Kimberly's apartment door had been partially ajar the night before, not just unlocked, but actually partially open, which was odd because Kimberly was normally very good about locking the door behind her as a safety precaution. I mean, sure, everybody makes mistakes, but it would have been very unusual for her to have been so careless. In fact, it would have been so out of character that investigators didn't think that that was what had happened at all. Rather, they believed that whoever had taken Kimberly's life had had a key to her apartment, although they didn't know why they'd left the door like that. To them, though, the murder seemed personal, too personal to have been a random crime that had just so happened to occur on a rare occasion where she had accidentally left her apartment door unsecured. As for who that someone might have been, well, it was and still is difficult to say, but as investigators embroiled themselves in the details of Kimberly's too short life, some ideas came to mind. Now, of course, investigators were aware that Kimberly's job came with a certain element of danger. Of course, most patrons of clubs like the Foxy Lady are not violent predators, but there's little doubt that a woman who dances professionally at a club is at a heightened risk of attracting the jealous attention of a predator. Dancing like Kimberly did falls under the umbrella of sex work, but most statistics regarding sex work and heightened violent crime and homicide victimization risks focus on workers who engage in prostitution, and Kimberly wasn't involved in that trade. Some dancers may engage in sex for pay, but she didn't, so it's hard to find truly relevant statistics to quote here. However, it's easy to see how dancing might attract attention from patrons with potential to become overly attached to or jealous of a certain entertainer. We all know, objectively, that dancers like Kimberly are working for money. It's, it's just a job. And their job isn't some thickly veiled dating ploy designed to somehow ensnare the perfect Prince Charming. Although many of those, quote, perfect Prince Charmings think they actually are that. Yes. The thing we have to keep in mind here is that humans in general have an amazing propensity for wishful thinking. Some people allow themselves to forget that they're paying for entertainment rather than for exclusivity, romance, or literally anything more. For a recent example of a woman who worked as an exotic dancer being murdered by an obsessed client, look up the murder of Abigail Saldana. She was only 22 years old when she was shot and killed in 2021 by a club patron who first stalked her by placing a tracking device on her vehicle. For whatever reason, Abigail's murderer let himself believe that Abigail owed him a lot more than the entertainment he'd paid for. And there have been, and will continue to be, others like him. Wireless monitoring device. Tracking is very prevalent right now. Yeah, we've dealt with it at work. They're getting better about being able to notify individuals, but I think it's just a great time to point out awareness for that for the general public. Yeah, that's true. They're actually fairly easy to open and modify to disarm certain features that might alert the person being followed. So, Like the speaker for the chime? Yeah, Additionally, I feel we'd be remiss not to mention a certain demographic of customer, those who voluntarily give far more to their favorite entertainers than is required or even expected. Some club patrons bestow high-value gifts upon their favorites, and Kimberly had some patrons like this. She'd had customers pay for vacations she'd taken, and one even gifted her a vehicle. Although those gifts were ostensibly acts of generosity intended to show appreciation, I'm sure investigators asked themselves. 
Had one of the particularly generous patrons felt entitled to more than entertainment in exchange for the thousands of dollars they'd spent? And if so, had they grown angry when they didn't receive what they expected to receive from Kimberly, perhaps angry enough to kill? Also, remember that Kimberly was on the verge of graduating from beauty school and was possibly about to move far away and leave the foxy lady and its patrons behind. This could also have contributed to the hypothetical rage of a client who considered her a favorite. Now, investigators considered these possibilities, but to the best of public knowledge, they weren't able to find any evidence indicating that Kimberly had been killed by any of the numerous club patrons they considered potential persons of interest. Additionally, they found no evidence to suggest that Kimberly had any sort of relationship with any customers outside of her work role, so she hadn't gotten personally entangled with any of them or anything like that. When asked about the possibility of Kimberly's work being related to her murder not long after her death, a North Providence police captain said this, quote, At this point, it doesn't seem the two are related, but again, we are still investigating. Everyone we spoke to that knew her spoke highly of her. She led a drug-free life. She was a health fanatic. At her apartment complex, we talked to her neighbors, and they had nothing but good things to say about her and the life she led, end quote. So the question is, if her killer wasn't one of the club patrons, and that's a medium-sized if, then who might they have been? Well, there are a couple of possibilities, and one of those possibilities is named Anthony. As we so often say on this show, women are far more likely to be murdered by the men in their lives, especially intimate partners, than by strangers. In Kimberly's case, she wasn't dating anyone at the time of her death. However, she had recently broken up with a man approximately six months prior to her death. That man was named Anthony, and like her, he was a bodybuilder. Unlike Kimberly, however, he hadn't wanted to break up. After she'd broken up with him, he'd reportedly told her, Women don't break up with me. I break up with them. To live in the wonderland. It's clear that he resented the loss of control over the relationship that Kim's decision to move on represented. As for whether he may have lashed out with deadly violence in order to regain control, well, that's not clear. However, we've said this in many other episodes, when a woman leaves her partner, if they're in an abusive relationship, she's at the most risk for 12 months after the breakup, at more risk than she was during the relationship. And I don't know whether Anthony was abusive, but he certainly seems like he has some ego and control issues. On that note, though, it does seem that Kimberly may have feared Anthony in the months between their breakup and her death. According to Uncovered.com, he inundated her cell phone with calls and texts. And that latter part is saying something, considering that the breakup occurred in 1999. I mean, can you imagine how much it must have cost to bombard someone with texts in 1999? To be honest... A part of me wonders whether the mention of texts is some sort of misunderstanding or misinterpretation, like maybe somebody along the line writing about this case conflated text messages with voicemail messages, which seem much more 1999. I looked it up because I wasn't sure how old texting is, and I found that texting didn't really start to become common practice until 1999. So if Anthony was using texts to harass her in 1999, he was on the cutting edge of technology. Regardless, according to what Kimberly's sister Sandy told the Murder She Told podcast, Kimberly had mentioned wanting to change her apartment locks, specifically to keep Anthony out. From this, I assume that she either knew or suspected that he had a key to her apartment. He isn't really seeming like the kind that would give that 
back willingly. Even if he did give it back, you know, all it takes is a little jaunt down to the hardware store to make a copy. Once you give somebody a key to a place, if you want to take it back, what you really need to do is change the lock. Now, this might also have explained something else that she did do. She put a new lock on her bedroom door, assumedly to shield herself from someone if they were already inside the apartment. Kimberly even told Sandy that once, when she'd had a friend living with her at her apartment temporarily, Anthony had attempted to break down her door. That's violent. Yeah, and that's all we really know about Anthony. Whether investigators have considered him a serious suspect in Kimberly's murder, I have no idea. I do know, however, that Anthony may not have been the only man to possibly inspire Kimberly to want to change her locks. You see, Kimberly had once allowed a couple to stay with her in her apartment for a few weeks. Presumably, this arrangement was pretty cramped. Remember, it was only a one-bedroom, one-bath apartment, but they were Kimberly's friends, and I assume she was helping them out. I don't know further details about why they needed to stay with her temporarily in her small apartment, but I know that during the month or so they were there, the male half of the couple reportedly became obsessed with Kimberly even though he was living there with the girlfriend he already had. So I'm sure that was awkward for both women, including Kimberly, who had allowed the couple to share the modest confines of her small home, not knowing what the situation would turn into. Needless to say, the arrangement didn't last long, although I'm sure that that month felt long to Kimberly and her female friend. I'm not sure how their friendship fared after that, but in the wake of Kimberly's murder, her male house guest's reported obsession drew scrutiny. After all, he'd lived there for a month. Presumably, Kimberly had given him a key. Had he kept it after moving out or perhaps made a copy of it? And while we're on the subject of men who may have been unusually and inappropriately interested in Kimberly, there's one more person we need to cover. Because Kimberly just couldn't catch a break when it came to men with no sense of boundaries, apparently. And I'm not even talking about inside the club where that kind of poor behavior might be expected to arise. I'm talking about in her everyday life. I guess the downside of being one of those people who lights up a room is that sometimes bad actors may be drawn to that light like scheming moths to a flame. In any case, Uncovered.com suggests that some family members and or friends of Kimberly's may have had suspicions about one of her neighbors. Now, this neighbor has never been publicly identified, but MurderSheTold.com states that he was an older man who was known to follow Kimberly around the apartment complex and sometimes even beyond. Apparently, he'd even shown up in the parking lot of the Foxy Lady where he just lurked creepily. So essentially, he was stalking her and she'd been kind to him at first, but had quickly grown creeped out by his behavior. And it gets worse. Does it? Yes, according to MurderSheTold.com, this neighbor may have worked for the landlord of the apartment complex in some capacity, which may have afforded him access to keys to Kimberly's apartment. I wish I could tell you more about this man, such as whether or not he had a criminal record and if so, what kind. But because he's never been publicly identified, I am unfortunately unable to do so. And last but not least, it's perhaps worth mentioning that a couple days before her death, Kimberly was involved in a road rage incident. That piece on the case from MurderSheTold.com states that just a day or two before her death, Kimberly called her good friend Becky while in a state of heightened emotion and left a long voicemail message detailing something that had happened to her while driving. Apparently, she'd caught the attention of an enraged driver who'd really scared her. 
Now, no one was hurt and no one actually exited their vehicles at any point and there was no collision or anything like that, but nevertheless, the event had had an emotional impact on Kimberly. This has perhaps led some to wonder whether the road rage-stricken driver might have later tracked her down somehow and attacked her, but I personally don't think this is very likely. If there's one thing I've learned about road rage-related murders and assaults from work, it's that they virtually always occur in the heat of the moment. They're impulsive crimes driven by the rage that gives them their name. Although I'm not saying it never happens, in the course of my work, I've never encountered a killing or other attack in which a road rage-involved driver returned a day or more after the event to exact violent revenge. That would be highly unusual. And in Kimberly's case, we have no shortage of potential culprits who are, statistically speaking, far more likely to have harmed her. Remember that investigators believe that Kimberly knew her killer and her killer had a key to her apartment, which yeah. certainly wouldn't be the case with Mr. Road Rage. Yeah. In the end, though, there are some questions about Kimberly's case that I find especially perplexing. The first is, why did her killer leave her apartment door slightly ajar for hours on end on the day of her murder? That does seem like you're just asking to be discovered. Right. According to Kimberly's neighbors, they'd noticed her apartment door standing partially open for a while before she ever arrived home from work and was killed upon entering. And I wonder whether her killer entered with a key, which is what investigators believe happened, or via some other means, why leave her door like that? It drew attention and presumably wasn't necessary in order for them to re-enter her apartment. In fact, if they were lying in wait inside, awaiting for Kimberly's return from work, which it seems they were, the partially open door could have put them at risk of a neighbor popping inside to investigate or perhaps even calling the police to check it out. I know at my work, open door calls are a thing. Sometimes people see their neighbor's doors standing suspiciously open, and they call the police to come check the place out and see whether it's been burglarized or otherwise tampered with. We get those at work, too, and people wanting to have the police check their homes before anybody goes in. Yeah. The one thing that stands out is doors that don't quite shut correctly. Yeah, like maybe there was an issue with the door. If he would have closed the door and then left or gone into the house and been deeper inside, like trying to figure out the lock on her bedroom door, it could have opened without them really paying any attention because they were elsewhere in the house. Maybe. Yeah. Like, I don't know whether the door stuck or had any little issues like that. Nothing mentioned that. But yeah, I think that's a possibility. The one thing I will say about that scenario, though, is anybody that has spent any quality amount of time within the home would have known that. Yeah, you're right. And of course, the partially open door risked alerting Kimberly to the fact that things weren't normal and something was perhaps wrong. Why her killer would risk that would risk her turning around or maybe even calling the police? I'm not certain. I've got a couple potential theories, but they're merely my attempts to make sense of this strange decision of the killers. So take them with a little grain of salt. I've got one, and it may be the same as yours. One possible theory is that the killer might have opened the door a little ways and left it in that state, hoping that Kimberly's neighbors would notice so that they would think that Kimberly had accidentally left the door ajar and unlocked when she'd left her apartment. This could perhaps have been a rather clumsy attempt to point suspicion away from someone with a key and toward a random criminal who saw the door open and seized the opportunity to commit a heinous crime. Of course, if this was the killer's intent, it wasn't exactly genius and it didn't work at all. But I'm under the impression that we're not really dealing with the genius here. So perhaps that fits. I also have another theory, one that's perhaps less stupid, and it centers around one person in particular, the stalker neighbor. Remember how I said he might have worked for the landlord? I do. Well, I couldn't help but wonder. 
What if that was the case and he had access to the landlord's office during business hours, but didn't have access after hours and hadn't been entrusted with his own set of apartment keys? In that case, what if he'd taken a key to Kimberly's apartment and used it to unlock her door during the day, during typical business hours, so he would be able to access it later and lie in wait for Kimberly to return home from work late that night? Because of his stalking behavior, he likely knew approximately when to expect Kimberly to arrive home. Of course, you're probably thinking, well, why wouldn't he just shut the door and leave it unlocked? Well, that's the next part of my theory. What if the door possessed some kind of automatic relocking mechanism that would have caused it to automatically lock when closed? You know, like a hotel room door. That is possible. Now, I haven't read anything that says that was the case, but MurderSheTold.com has a lot of photos from this case, including a photo of the door to Kimberly's apartment. And in that photo, the doorknob looks as if it may be an auto-relocking type. Usually, these types of doorknobs have a numbered security keypad, which the one on Kim's door has. Scott, I'm going to show you the photo, and you'll see the lever-style door handle is set into a keyed entry pad, which appears to also have a place for a traditional door key to be used in lieu of an entry code. So, that's the door to her apartment. Yeah. So... First off, it looks like a pretty high quality lock, especially for the time. I mean, electronic door locks in a resident, they're certainly more common now. So I'm not sure if it has an auto locking feature. It's possible. Yeah, I can't tell just from looking at the photo, but it looks like an auto relocking type. It could have that. I have my suspicions about what brand and what type it is, just given the time and who was and wasn't making those, but nothing definitive. And I'm not familiar enough with their early keyed entry doors like that Mm -hmm. to know whether or not they had an auto locking feature. But like you said, it's certainly possible. Yeah. So imagine he unlocked her door. He didn't want to steal the key because that might be suspicious. He might get found out. So he just tried to leave it open a little bit so that he could come back later. I've got an expanded theory on that, but okay. I'll wait till I hear the rest of you. So I'm coming up with my own as we go. I'm just about done with this. The problem is that I don't actually know for sure how old that photo of her apartment door is. The caption doesn't say. It could be a photo of the apartment back in 2000 when it belonged to Kimberly and she was murdered. Or it could be more modern. Admittedly, the wallpaper looks decidedly 90s, but we can't rely on that to make a definitive statement. So I can't tell you for sure whether that was the doorknob when Kimberly lived in the apartment or whether her doorknob was an auto-locking type. This is just a theory. Anyway, those are my ideas. Scott, do you have any other theories on why her killer might have left the door partially open? So I just looked up one of my more prominent lock brands to see when they started making wireless electronic locks Mm -hmm. and they actually started in 1986 so it's definitely possible i know they started focusing more heavily into the residential lock system Mm -hmm. around in the mid 90s so i know that it's certainly possible that that was a keyed entry door made by a certain brand so they had the technology they had the technology okay so it definitely could be from 2000 But my thought that I've been working with, you kind of hit on part of it, which is this person probably knew her schedule very well, Mm -hmm. like the stalker neighbor. And probably the reason why he felt comfortable leaving it partially opened was 
Perhaps he knew the other neighbor's schedules also, and he knew about what time he could most likely get away with getting in and out if he left it open like that, if he didn't have a key after hours. Okay, yeah, that could be the case. And if he knew her schedule, as long as she didn't get sick or leave early, he probably knew it would be safe for him to sneak back in and he could leave the door open without drawing too much suspicion. Okay. Another thing I've wondered about somewhat is this. Why did Kimberly's killer remove her clothing before draping her body in gasoline-soaked towels and setting them ablaze? Practically speaking, her clothing, although bloody, likely wouldn't have imposed much of a barrier between her and the flames. The clothing removal makes me wonder whether she might have been sexually assaulted by her killer, although to the best of my knowledge, the medical examiner wasn't able to find any evidence to suggest sexual assault. Now, of course, that doesn't rule it out. There's not always visual, physical evidence, but if not for that reason, then perhaps removing Kimberly's clothing might have been an attempt by the killer to degrade or humiliate her in some way. Killers sometimes display their victims' bodies in the nude for this reason, but the hole in this theory is that Kimberly's killer likely believed that by the time first responders reached her remains, they would have been burnt beyond immediate recognition. Therefore, there would have been no one else to witness the state she'd been left in, so to be honest, I'm not really sure what the reason behind removing her clothing was. I've been theorizing on that after you mentioned it as well. And the sexual assault aspect of it has weighed heavily on my thoughts. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it was about seeing her naked and he didn't necessarily have to do anything penetrative. Yeah, that's a good point. Sometimes killers who are sexually motivated don't commit what we would consider a traditional sexual assault. There may not be physical genital trauma or semen or any of those classic things that we would think that a medical examiner would look for. Sometimes the sexual thrill does not come from having sexual contact with the victim's body. And I think that's as descriptive as I need to be here. To touch on that a little bit more, mm -hmm. it could have also been to keep any level of his DNA off of her body. Perhaps. Yeah, that's a good so. point. One thing I don't know is we know her clothing was removed. I don't know if it was found at the scene or if the killer took it and got rid of it or kept it. I, I wish I knew, but I don't. That was going to be my third idea was it could have been also taken as a trophy. Maybe, but for a killer to take an entire bloody outfit, all of her clothing, that would be rather unusual. I think if that happened, he would have likely disposed of parts of it elsewhere, mm -hmm. but would have wanted to go through it first and pick the best piece for a trophy, perhaps. The piece that they found most sentimental, and, for lack of a better word. And I think that would have been tied into seeing her naked. The other piece that I find really interesting about this is, I think, had he soaked her clothes in gasoline also or poured them on it, it would have retained it and helped spread the fire over her body better. Yeah. It's like, so, so you removed some pieces of cloth to replace them with other pieces of cloth. <laughs> yes. And not just some pieces of cloth, but some pieces of cloth that go around the entire body. Yeah. That's what made me think potential trophy. Maybe. Or like you said, I think that that was a pretty good idea that maybe they thought, hey, their DNA evidence may be on the clothing. Let's get rid of it. Who knows, after they put her in the tub, maybe they washed her body off with water to try to get rid of DNA. I don't know. 
Up until this point, we haven't spoken about recent developments in Kimberly's case, and that's because, well, her case hasn't spent much time in the public eye for quite a long time, which is one of the reasons we wanted to make this episode. However, there has been some modern coverage, such as, of course, the MurderSheTold.com and Uncovered.com pieces we've referenced throughout the episode, which I encourage you to check out. But also, there's an article from WPRI News titled, Detective to Killer. When you think you got away with it, think again. I like it. In that 2019 article, North Providence Police Lieutenant Thomas Jones spoke about the investigation, reiterating that police believe it was a very personal crime. He revealed that in the early stages of the investigation, detectives narrowed down the pool of potential suspects to about 30 people. When they were unable to locate evidence definitively pointing to any of those 30 individuals, the case cooled and they consulted with the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, who were able to put together a profile on the type of offender they were likely searching for. The details weren't provided to the public, but they were helpful to investigators. Also helpful was a tip that came in in 2014, 14 years after Kimberly's murder, via an anonymous email. Now, I don't know what the details of that tip were, but I do know that it led investigators all the way from Rhode Island to the distant state of Michigan. Now, this didn't lead to any arrests, but investigators remain confident that eventually, Kimberly's killer will be identified. In that 2019 news piece, Lieutenant Jones revealed that investigators had collected DNA, which they believe belongs to Kimberly's killer, from the crime scene back in 2000. So far, they haven't been able to match that DNA to a suspect, which indicates that if the DNA profile collected from the crime scene has been tested against the FBI's national DNA database, CODIS, then Kimberly's killer has likely not been charged with any felony crimes within the U.S. I say this because in the U.S., most felony crimes legally require the accused offender's DNA to be collected after they're charged and ultimately submitted to the CODIS database. Given the huge advances in crime-solving technology recently afforded by familial DNA technology, perhaps it's possible that Kimberly's murder will be solved in that fashion. We just covered a case where that happened. I'm looking at you, Lamar and Ruth Vickerstaff, Golden State Killer. I could go on and on. The advances this technology has brought to solving these cold cases, it's just amazing. Or perhaps someone will give investigators the information they need to identify Kimberly's killer and finally serve justice on her behalf and on the behalf of the many people who loved her, including her family, friends, and the little girl to whom she served as a mentor and second mother figure. If you know anything about the murder of Kimberly Morse, please contact the North Providence Police Department at 401-233-1430. That's their regular line. Or you can call their anonymous tip line at 401-719-1449. That's all for this episode of Last Seen in Life. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Make sure you check out our website, lastseenalifepodcast.com, for photos from this story and links to the sources we use to write it. While you're at it, follow us on Insta and Twitter at LSA Podcast. New episodes of Last Seen Life go live every other Monday. See you then. If you think bringing unsolved cases like Kimberly's to the public's attention is important, please take a moment to rate or review Last Seen Life and tell your friends to check us out too. Really would appreciate it. Last Seen Life is written and researched by you, Leah. Audio engineering and editing is provided by me, Scott, in association with our podcast production partners, Podcast Post-Production. Check them out at podcastpostproduction.com for all of your podcasting needs. 
Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.